Well, it's great to be able to hear, you know, from house churches, because we go throughout, you know, the year oftentimes not knowing what's going on in everyone's house church or just even knowing that there are these other house churches that are with us. So thank you, Deirdre and Stacy, for, for sharing with us and, and being so honest with us. If, uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're, we're going through the book of Daniel, and it's been a fun road thus far. I mean, these are some of the most well-known narratives of the Bible, these great stories within Daniel and pointing us to this ultimate hope and ultimate king. Today, we're in Daniel chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Daniel chapter 5. Again, one of these uh, well-known and amazing stories of, of Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. So starting here in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the God of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Do you see this image? Now, these are the very items. So in the tabernacle and then into the temple, God instituted these very much household items. Bowls, cups, silverware, tables, all these things. Because the tabernacle and the temple were really supposed to symbolize this house of God. So they had very household items. Belshazzar brings in those items. And him and his gathering of friends, right, drink from them while praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So you have this picture of a new king with this new kind of terror that's going on. It's a similar story to what we've had earlier. A king who's perplexed by a vision, can't fully understand it. But here the context is different. We're in the midst of this tremendous feast and in a lot of ways, right, the feasts of Babylon were incredibly well known in the ancient world. I mean, this is the Greek historian Herodotus writes of this, that their feasts, these banquets could go on for months of feasting and drinking, that they knew no end to this excessiveness with all of it. And so as a reader, you're familiar with the earlier narratives, and it's a not-so-subtle comparison that they want you to do. They want you to compare Belshazzar with his father, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Father and son, one built an empire, 
right? The other prepares a party. That's where it starts you with his life. Even the centerpiece of this feast, of this huge party, comes from the accomplishments of his father, right? These vessels. He did not get these. He did not accomplish any of these things. Belshazzar's only contribution to the narrative is to profane these sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had claimed as spoils of war. And while they were praising these man-made gods of Nebuchadnezzar, or not of Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, of Belshazzar, a revelation comes from the Lord. And again, you have them compared. Nebuchadnezzar, right, we were familiar with, was troubled often. He was terrified of these dreams. His son is completely undone. This, this image of him, his knees knocking, it's more of like his joints giving way. He completely collapses. And really what the text is trying to get across, the Bible does this, this so many euphemisms, he really soils himself in the scene. He just completely undone. Right? He collapses, and it's an amazing scene of humiliation in front of all these lords and figures. He has seen the writing on the wall, and he can't even right, handle any of it. So we have a new king, very familiar, but also very unlike his father. And then in verse 10, the narrative continues. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because of an excellent spirit, Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. His mother has to step in. Right? This ultimate humiliation, really, of this king. Mom steps in, and it's a, very, it's a rebuke. You should have known better. Don't you, don't you remember the stories of your father? Don't you remember what happened to him? Don't you remember Daniel? Right, Call him. So he does. In verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. The king has a real defensive tone. Right? It's hard for us always to pick up on, but because of his mother's rebuke, it makes sense. He's really trying right off the bat to put Daniel in his place. You are one of those who my father took as a captive. Well, yeah, it's true. Remember, I mean, he was the ruler of Babylon. I mean, 
Babylon, I mean, but Daniel had a huge place of position, power, influence. Belshazzar knows that. He knows this guy is a big deal. <laughs> He's been clothed with honor and glory already within Babylon. And all he refers to him as, right, is, oh, you're one of those exiles who was taken. I've heard a lot about you. Let's see if you can deliver. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God ruled the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored." It's a stark picture of what has happened. Daniel, equally blunt with Belshazzar. Belshazzar was pretty blunt with him. You are the exile. You can keep. You can keep your reward. He does not speak to Belshazzar the way he spoke to his father. Right? The way Daniel spoke to his father was always differential, very respectful. Oh, king, may you live for keep your rewards, but I'm still going to interpret for you. The most high God gave your father everything. And again, it's this implicit judgment of Belshazzar, not so implicit, pretty explicit actually, right? That nothing, nothing was given to you by God, Belshazzar, right? Everything you have, you inherited from your father. None of this is yours. You did nothing for any of these things. Nebuchadnezzar, right, legitimately had something to be proud of. He legitimately was one of the greatest kings who has ever ruled a kingdom. He built the wonders of the world that other historians write about. I mean, he, he did it. He had a legitimate reason to be proud, and God still humbled him. Nebuchadnezzar, right, Belshazzar has nothing to be proud of. Yet here he is, 
boastful and arrogant, claiming the victories that his father did, who should be humbled, rather is profaning the God who humbled his father. And the idea here, right, Belshazzar should know better. We have this comparison. Again, Nebuchadnezzar ultimately acknowledged the Most High God and left his idols. He left his gods. He saw them as powerless, right? And he acknowledged the Most High God eventually as his God. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar did that, Belshazzar instead ridicules the Most High God and turns to his idols. Verse 24. Then, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. God has numbered his days, right? The handwriting on the wall is clear. God has numbered him, and his reign and his kingdom has been brought to an end. He has been weighed on the scales, and he has been found wanting. He has been compared to his father, and he is not the same. He has been compared, he has been weighed by the Most High God, and he is not fit. And everything has been taken from him. And you wonder, did the king believe him? It seems like he must have. He rewards him in that moment, clothes him in the purple, makes him the third highest ruler in the land. But ultimately, it's a very empty gift. Because that very night, he dies. And there you find, right, the author really then just shows you the folly of Belshazzar. Right, he is... He is feasting on the brink of his destruction. The Medes are encamped on the very right walls of his city. And Herodotus describes this, how the Medes were there. I mean, they have conquered all of his kingdom, all of his father's kingdom, except for the city of Babylon. And here is Belshazzar, who should be protecting his people, right, riding out into war, defending. Instead, he throws a, a feast. He gets drunk. He boasts and really clings to his gods of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood to protect him in this moment. It's an ultimate folly, this folly of the feet. Now you can understand probably the rebuke of his mother and the rebuke of Daniel. Keep your rewards. Like, don't you see what's going on here, Belshazzar? Don't you understand that the end is right now? It's right at hand. And you have the crashing down of an empire. And it's again those echoes of the old Babel. This new Babel ended its days under the judgment of God. 
under a curse of incomprehensible speech and a divinely imposed division of the people, just like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Babel ends. And it's a startling ending to the kingdom of Babylon. This is it. And they will never rise again. There will never be the empire of Babylon after Belshazzar. Darius and the Medes come in and they take over. And what you find then is this picture of a king who is proud and who is arrogant. And he's handled very differently than the way that Nebuchadnezzar is. And the whole narrative is designed for us to compare. Right? They, they want you to see, they want us to compare Belshazzar to his father. They want us to compare the way that Daniel treats the different kings. He wants us to compare the way that God treats the different kings. We are to see Belshazzar for who he really is. And with that final reveal at the end of just total folly. We are to see him. And we are to see that this king is an arrogant, proud man who turns to his false gods in the face of trouble and who is easily and completely undone. Can't face the reality. Can't face the harsh reality that's all around him, the pain and the suffering, the trial that's come upon him. We're to see him and we're to lament for him. However, when we look closer and as we meditate on Belshazzar, we see, right, unfortunately, that Belshazzar is meant to characterize us, is meant to characterize Israel, just like his father. Again, the shift in the narrator wants us to put ourselves in the place of these kings, not in the place of Daniel, because if we're honest with ourselves, we are surrounded by Belshazzar's. Right? His, his reaction to his suffering and his state, the reaction to his judgment is not uncommon. Right? He is not a unique character in this text. He's actually a very common one. We are a very arrogant people. Right? When you really look at our culture in particular, we are a boastful, prideful, arrogant people especially taking credit for things that are not ours, that we did not labor for, right? This maybe is just the lament of every generation as you get older and older and you look at your children, right? But what have you done? You're just enjoying what, right, my generation did, the generation before that did, right? And we always try to do that as a, as a culture, right? Try to remember who laid those foundations, who got us the freedom of speech, who made this the way that we, but we don't, we don't acknowledge those people, we rarely acknowledge those who went before, but rather we claim that this is mine, and I did this. Look at all that my hand has done, just like Nebuchadnezzar. We take pride in the things that we didn't earn, and we are easily undone, right, when those things get threatened or taken away. When we quickly turn in the face of, of destruction, in the face of suffering, even minor suffering, we quickly turn to the things in our life that seem to promise us life, that promise us safety, but who but fail to deliver all the time. Right? And you know, Belshazzar, turning to these gods of gold and silver is foolish. They're not going to be able to save him. But him and his thousands of lords and wives, right, they all do it, thinking 
this could do it. They could save us. I mean, this is us. We turned all these things, and they don't deliver, and the result, right, is this just strange melancholy that pervades our lives and our society, where you have this abundance of things, abundance of riches, an amazing feast before us. I mean, our lives are, we feast. You look at my life, you look at the way that I live, I mean, it is a feast every day. I have everything. What don't I have in my life that the Lord has not provided, that my parents haven't provided, that other people haven't provided for me, that I'm the recipient of? I have been given everything. But instead of humbled, right, I am proud and I am arrogant and I cling to those things and I look to all of these other things to give me satisfaction and joy and when they don't deliver, I just, right, I just keep going on. But it's this melancholy in the 1830s, this is not a new phenomenon in America, Alex de Tocqueville, this, this Frenchman whose famous journal of his travels through America, you know, he travels through America in the 1830s and writes of it, and he writes of the same thing, and he writes that, that there seems to be a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants of America. In the midst of their abundance, there seems to be this strange melancholy, despair, even though they have everything. Right? Because, and that is the reality. If you, people who come from other nations who visit America, right, or go through everything. But then there's this strange despair and hopelessness. What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Don't they have enough? When will they ever have enough? And even Tocqueville then said, right, that the, in the 1830s, he said that incomplete joys of the world will never satisfy the human heart. And this is us. This is Belshazzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Filling ourselves with incomplete joys that can never fully satisfy us. And then we live with this intense fear. Right? When you look at this story, that is a frightening story. If I'm supposed to be Belshazzar, that's, right, like it was frightening putting myself in the position of Nebuchadnezzar and having to be humbled and live as a beast it's another thing to be weighed by God himself, to be judged. Like we all live in an intense fear of judgment. Even those of us who love judgment or who like to be evaluated, we only really like that. Maybe that's some of you. I was always this way. I, you know, give me a test. That's great. Give me quizzes. This is going to be fun, right? Because I'm pretty confident I'm going to do well. I'm pretty confident that you're going to find me better than most. All right, well, that's fine. But even that desire is ultimately a fear of being found wanting at the end of that test. We live in that fear of being weighed and found wanting. Can you imagine that, to be weighed by God? Are you worthy of life? Are you worthy of the blessings that you have? Are you worthy of this everything that you have in your life? You look at all of the blessings, all of the goodness. None of it is yours. Are you, do you deserve any of this? I don't want to sit in that position of judgment because I know I would not pass that test. We hear this story, whew, which is why wait, we have that fear of judgment, which is why we are so busy all the time trying to fill our lives with some sort of accomplishment, something, some sort of measure of success that could give us something to hold on to. 
give us some sort of measure that we could say, I will pass the test. I am good enough. I deserve my wife. I deserve my kids. I deserve this house. I deserve this job. I deserve, right, this comfort. I deserve to be able to do these things. I deserve this because, I mean, look at what I've been doing. Look at how hard I work. Look at how much ministry I do. Look at, look at all the things. We're desperate to find something, right, to measure up, to give us something that will fill that. And we spend our time, right, just boasting and comparing, which is just what Belshazzar does in this feast. Boasting and comparing. Let's bring in the vessels of the Most High God and compare them to the gold and the idols that I have here. Let's just compare. Let's look at my life and compare it to somebody else's. Let me just boast of my goodness and compare it to yours. And we're always just desperately trying to be somebody. And we know right, that we won't pass that test. But the judgment of God against Belshazzar is also a judgment against Belshazzar's gods. Did you, check, did you catch that in the text? I mean, it's very clear that we're supposed to compare the two kings, and Belshazzar is not worthy, does not deserve the kingship that he's given. But God is also comparing Belshazzar's gods to his. That his gods have been weighed and his gods are wanting, that his gods have failed the test. The things that he has turned to are not the same. They can't deliver. They can't promise life. Death is at the door for Belshazzar, and his gods will not deliver him. And in the same way, we feel that weight of judgment on us, and our gods feel the weight of judgment on them as well. Our idols, the things that we turn to, the empty promises of all of the things that we serve are being weighed. That the gospel, that Christ and the message of the Bible, it weighs us. When I read the gospel message, when I'm confronted by Christ, I am weighed. <laughs> Everybody feels that, that intense humbling. We talked about that last week with Nebuchadnezzar. That humbling, the gospel message humbles you. I am not as great as I thought I am. I do not have control over my life. I do not have this ability to save myself or to save my family or to provide for my need. I, in the face of Christ and this king who has done everything on my behalf, I clearly am not that special. But the gospel also weighs our gods. It weighs the idols and it exposes their lies it exposes the empty promises of them. Because the reader, Israel, as they're reading this narrative, right, they very well understand what Nebuchadnezzar, what Belshazzar, what they're doing. They get it. These gods of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. The sin of the Bible, right, all the way through, has been that you have put other things in the place of God. The first commandment. I mean, most of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments. For those of you who are not, the first commandment really is the summation of all of them. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's it. The rest, all the rest of the law hinges on that. If you put anything else before God, then you will 
break the rest of the commandments. Martin Luther famously wrote that, right? Like nobody breaks the other commandments until they have broken the first commandment and you put something else in the place of God. Then everything falls apart. That's the sin of the Bible. That's Israel's sin. And you see it all the way through. If you know the Old Testament narratives at all, they are continually raising up other idols. They are continually carrying with them from the time of Egypt onwards. Right? Where they will have to say it, you know, generation after generation, the leaders of Israel will say to the people, put away, just put away the gods that your fathers brought out of Egypt of gold and silver. Literally, like their generation, generations upon generations have been handing down golden and silver idols from Egypt and giving them to generations of generations. And so they, they claim to believe in God, but at the same time, they have all these other idols with them. And they worship them, and they turn to them when things get hard. You say, I believe in God, but in this moment, I think that this God is actually going to be able to provide for my needs right now. Israel is completely unable to be faithful to God. And unfortunately, it's my issue as well. Scripture is very clear on this as well. The New Testament has the same idea. Or Paul will, every time he references in those lists of sins, he just talks about all of this is idolatry. It's covetousness. It's putting something else in the place of God. Where you are after something, you're worshiping something else other than God, and that leads us into our sin. The sin of Israel is the sin of us. The sin of Belshazzar is the sin of me. I know there is a God in heaven. Belshazzar knew it. His father lived as cattle. Like He knows the stories. He has heard of the works of God. He knows who he is. But when things get rough, he's going to hedge his bets. And he is going to turn to anything else to provide him comfort. And we do the same. We take good things in our life. We take these blessings in our life. We take the things that we don't even deserve or have earned, just like Belshazzar, and we turn them into ultimate things, ultimate hopes, where we say, this will provide for my needs. We love them, and as we love them, we find ourselves enslaved to them. We find the fact we have to obey them, and they become fickle masters over us. You get what you want, but at the cost of defilement, at the cost of slavery, which is where Belshazzar finds himself too. Right? If you bow down to money long enough, you will be compromised by it. It will lead you to sin, which will lead you into guilt and shame, and will lead you into further and further efforts to keep that idol safe. If you bow down to the, right, to, the, to the God of sexual immorality, you will compromise yourself in all kinds of different ways and you will feel all kinds of guilt and shame and it will lead you further and further to worship that God and to obey its demands and you will never want to expose it. Right? I mean, these idols are fickle. Right? The idols of Belshazzar promised him life, but all they could deliver was destruction. And when our idols become exposed, when our idols are threatened, we are undone. Right? We become easily undone. We are easily overcome with fear. We are easily quick. We, We are quick to anger. 
pray, and, and it causes us to ask those questions then of ourselves, you know, like what are those things that cause us to be so quickly undone? What are you most afraid of losing in your life? Well, that's your idol, right? What is it that would take you, right, to like Belshazzar, what would it take for you to collapse in a heap, right, and say, I can't even go on? Well, that's where you're putting your hope. These things reveal to us our idols. What provokes such quick responses of anger or of guilt or of shame? What are you hoping for? Our reactions reveal our idols and our hopes. And the good news for us is the same good news for Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar and for Israel. The gospel will confront us time and time again and reveal those idols to us. Where we'll be confronted again and again with them. The question is, what do we do when we get confronted, when our idols get exposed? Because anybody who's been in the church long enough, you know this. I mean, there are so many ways in which our idols constantly are getting exposed to us. They're getting threatened all the time. This is the point of marriage and of raising children, not for your happiness, but really just to bring up your idols. This is great. When you're buying a house, like, I mean, all of these things just reveal more and more our idols. As we approach retirement, as we approach any of these things, there's all of this stuff. It's just opportunities. The political season, right? I mean, this, the anger that's going across the nation right now, I mean, all of this is just opportunities for us to evaluate what are we putting our hope in? Why are we reacting the way that we are? And we can identify the idols. That's actually not that hard. I think most of us are pretty good at that. The world can do that. They say, you know what? I've been putting too much hope in this. You're right. I've been flying off the handle. This is irrational. I shouldn't be so prone to those things. But it's not enough to just uproot the idol. It's not enough just to see the powerlessness of the idols. That's not enough. Belteshar saw that. (laughs) We can see that. We can see how our idols are powerless to deliver. But unless we can replace our idols... They're just going to grow back. This was Israel's issue. They were constantly told to put them away, and they constantly put them away. Like, we'll never worship them again. (laughs) But then they always did. Because recognizing that something's wrong, recognizing that my heart goes to something else, and then trying to stop just doesn't work. Our hope isn't in finding out what idols we have, what gods we've been serving, and killing them or getting rid of them. That's an impossibility. But rather, they have to be replaced. We have to be able to see the true source of power. Because again, this narrative in all of Daniel has been desperately trying to get us to compare. Right? It's trying to get us to compare. Compare the kingdom of Belshazzar and his idols versus the kingdom of God and Jesus. And when you ultimately compare those two things, you start to get a better picture of a God that is worthy of our devotion, that's worthy of our praise, that's worthy of our worship, that's worthy of of us putting our hopes in. Because we can be dissatisfied with our marriages and say, yep, I shouldn't have put all my hope there. Or dissatisfied with homes or with work or ministry and say, oh, all right, I get it. I was putting too much hope there. But if we don't replace it with something far greater that pushes it out, it'll always sneak back in and regrow. Because when we compare these two, when we compare Jesus and his kingdom to that of Belshazzar, right? Jesus' kingdom, there's no glamour, there's no glitz, there's no just putting on of airs like he does. 
Rather, for Jesus, right, there is no possessions. There's relatively few followers, not these thousands that gather for a feast for him. He had no earthly beauty. He appeared as a humble carpenter, not as this mighty emperor, right, with all of this pageantry. At Christ's Last Supper, right, compared to Belshazzar's Last Supper, it's a vast difference. Where one is trying to ignore his impending death, the other embraces and commemorates it. Whereas one's life is weighed and found wanting, the other's life is weighed and found perfect and complete. Where one feels the weight of unworthiness and is undone, the other finds the weight of glory and of being told, well done, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The difference of that approval, the verdict that comes from God. The true banquet of Christ and his kingdom is still to come. Right? And as we look at the true banquet that's really coming, not this earthly one, right, we see that one day we will all sit in the place of Belshazzar's nobles, that there will be millions of saints at the feast. At the banquet, there will be no place for our pride. There will be no place for interruptions, no place for these other gods, that this kingdom will never be divided, that it will be forever and ever. This king is such a good king. There is no God that deserves our praise more. A God, a king who deserved all of the praise, all of the accolades, but who lays them down who leaves the feast, who leaves the Father's home to save the people, to take the death that was deserved of everyone else, that everyone can have life. That's the God I want to serve. That's the God I want to worship. My other gods pale in comparison to that. Money can't even come close to provide me any sort of joy or happiness that this king could provide. Nothing could. In light of the gospel, the promises of our idols get revealed and the beauty of Christ gets revealed. And the hope in that, right, the hope for all of us is that in light of Christ, when we see him and we see our depravity as well, right, that it leads us to genuine repentance, a repentance that has both a repentance but also a rejoicing. Tim Keller writes this, in his book on idolatry, this idea that if you only repent, right, but have no joy, have no rejoicing, it leads to despair. And you will always be repenting. It just is a continual cycle of repentance. You see your sin and you repent. You're undone, I mean, in the face of Christ, and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to be humbled in the face of Christ and see your sin and repent. That's a good thing. But it's a cycle, and as evangelicals, we've been really guilty of that for a long time, of just constant repenting of our sin, seeing my idol and repent, repent, repent. But he also points out, if all we do is rejoice, and we constantly gather together and just rejoice of God's forgiveness, there's, not a, there's no genuineness. There's no changes that happen. We just get together and rejoice all the time and feel good about ourselves and feel good about our salvation. But that the gospel of Christ should do both things. And that's what we see in Daniel. It should drive us to humility. It should drive us to true gospel humility, to a genuine repentance. 
Nothing of mine is mine. And I have turned to all of these things in place of the Most High God. Who am I? What have I done? I could never stand in the seat of judge. I would fail the test. Who am I? But we can't stay there. But then the gospel draws us to rejoice. And thank goodness that I'm not there. And praise God, the King of heaven, that he took for me the judgment that I deserved and gives me the verdict of this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Until you feel, right, until you really have felt the weight of that judgment, not the judgment of Belshazzar, but the judgment of Christ, when you have let that weight of I am pleased with you settle into the recesses of your heart, we will always be turning to those other gods and those idols. The way that we deal with our sin, the way that we deal with our idolatry is not just to root them out, but to focus on Christ and to feel the weight of his glory, to rejoice in his riches and his mercy and to repent of our sin at the same time. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. And we praise you and thank you for your great work that you have done on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that you are the high king of heaven. We thank you for the love and the mercy that you have demonstrated to us. Oh, Lord, we confess to you our sin and our folly. That in the face of our destruction, instead of turning to you, we turn to ourselves and we turn to the things of this world so quickly in hopes of distracting ourselves from that judgment. Lord, we acknowledge that sin and we do humbly confess it. We don't want to move too quickly from our sin. But Lord, we also just praise you for being the God who has redeemed us. That our salvation is based on you. It's not based on us. It's not even based on our confessing of our sin. But it's based on your finished work. So Lord, continue to confront us. Continue to point out our idols every day. And Lord, help us, strengthen us to know the power of your great love and mercy for us. In your name we pray, amen.